Mark chapter 5 is where we are. The Gospel of Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And uh, this is a Halloween-appropriate text of Scripture to look at. Um, There is a lot of intrigue around the activity of Satan and demons. um, And that is uh, much of what this passage is about this morning. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. As you're turning there, I want to remind uh, the brothers here, uh, we have a men's breakfast this Saturday, 8.30. Uh, One of our pastor elders, Ed Roden, is going to be sharing his testimony. Incredibly encouraging brother and story, and so I hope you'll join us. 8.30, we'll be done by 10 o'clock. You won't miss a single snap of any football game, and uh, we'll be done in plenty of time, no cost. If you could sign up at the Connect Desk or online, woodsidebible.org, go to the events tab and uh, the Royal Oak events, and uh, you'll see where to sign up. But we'd love to have you this Saturday at 8.30. All right, Mark chapter 5 is where we are. And just want to give you, again, an overview uh, before we get into this particular passage, kind of where we are in Mark's gospel. You remember, in, um, we've titled this sermon series, Thy Kingdom Come. Uh, that famous phrase from the Lord's Prayer, because that is what we're seeing in the life of Jesus. It's what we're seeing in the ministry of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven has come to earth, the kingdom of God on display in the life of Christ. So in Mark chapter 4, you remember all the parables, Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God. He was explaining the kingdom of God. But then toward the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus starts to show us the kingdom of God through these different actions, these different scenes in his life where he puts the kingdom on display for us to witness visually almost. And we saw last week uh, the first of these events. Jesus was in a boat. A storm suddenly comes upon he and his disciples. And with a word, the Lord stills the storm. Turning to chapter 5, There's not an external storm, but there is a storm within a man. And Jesus, just the same, with a word, is going to still this storm and bring peace to this man's life. So let's read Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Jesus and the disciples came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. This man lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for the man had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, the man was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, What is your name? The man replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
And the man begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged Jesus, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had just happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every so often in athletics, a competitor emerges that is uniquely superior to his competition. You think about Wayne Gretzky's run in the 80s. You think about Michael Jordan's success in the 90s or Tiger Woods' streak in the 2000s. Records were obliterated. Awards were accumulated. Championships piled up. These athletes didn't just defeat their opponents. They dominated their opponents. When they were at their peak, you almost felt bad for the competition. It was like men playing amongst boys. There was no chance. This is why, growing up in the 90s like I did, I am forever not a Chicago Bulls fan. Because they had Michael Jordan, and they always won. I'm like eternally bitter, because it wasn't fair. They were just so good. Supreme, even. Well, I bring those snapshots of athletic dominance to mind in light of today's passage and what we learn about Jesus. You see, the Bible is clear that there are spiritual forces of darkness in our present world. In today's passage, they are referred to as unclean spirits and demons. And earlier in Mark chapter 3, there is a figure who is labeled the ruler of demons. Jesus also calls him their Satan. Perhaps the most notable verse related to our spiritual opposition is Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes there, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the Apostle Paul there, he is calling us to arms He is making clear this is not a peacetime season for the people of God. We're at war. Not a physical war of flesh and blood and bombs and bullets. No, there is a spiritual war against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
But what we see in today's passage is that if you liken our spiritual war to a pickup game of hockey, we've got the great one on our team, Wayne Gretzky. Or if you liken our spiritual war to a pickup game of basketball, we've got MJ on our side. Or if you liken our spiritual battle to a scramble golf tournament, we're playing with Tiger. It's almost not even fair. The captain of our salvation is so supreme. He is so dominant. He is exceedingly superior over our enemy. Yes, there are spiritual forces of evil. Yes, we must engage in this conflict with urgency and prayer and faith. But the good news is that we engage in this fight with the dominating presence of Jesus on our side. So let's look back over these verses and observe Jesus' uniquely superior power over the demonic realm. One thing to note here is the level of competition that our Lord faces. In verse 9, Jesus asks the demon, what is your name? And he replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a legion was a military unit for a certain number of soldiers, kind of like our military uses the terms platoon or battalion. A platoon is about 20 to 50 soldiers. A battalion is 300 to 1,000 soldiers. Well, a legion was the largest amount of Roman soldiers grouped together. It was usually a few thousand of them that made up a legion. And sure enough, Later, when the demons leave the man, they enter into about 2,000 pigs. So specific number aside, this is an extreme amount of dark power at work in this man. Most of the time when Jesus frees people from demonic depression, we do not get any clues that there are more than one demon at work. But in this unique situation, there are thousands at work. So that's the level of competition Jesus faces here, and it does not matter one iota. They can double-team, triple-team, quadruple-thousand-team Jesus, and they still have no chance. And the demons know this. So think back to verses 6 through 7. From the very start, as soon as they see Jesus from afar, the demon-possessed man runs towards him and then falls at his feet. You know, usually before a football game, each team sends a few captains to center field for the coin toss. And these captains walk towards one another with swagger. They give each other stiff handshakes. Their presence exudes confidence and strength, but not here. When the opposition meets Jesus... He immediately takes this posture of surrender and defeat. And then the enemy proceeds to do all that you can do in the face of such superiority. Beg for mercy. In verse 7, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God. I plead with you, do not torment me. And then in verse 10, the demon can only beg not to be sent out of that country. I mean, you're almost embarrassed for these demons, right? They're groveling. They're helpless. They're miserably incapable in the presence of Jesus, and they know it. So again, yes, we must face the reality 
of spiritual evil in our world. And we must with urgency and prayer and truth engage in spiritual warfare. However, we also fight this battle knowing that our enemy does not stand a chance. Our captain, our Lord, our king, all he has to do is speak. Come out! Come out, you unclean spirit! And by the power of his word, these demons leave the man and then rush down into their watery grave. When it comes to these demons, Jesus is a man among boys. He is uniquely superior. He doesn't just defeat them. He dominates them. And so my hope for us, church, is that in the face of evil, we would gain the kind of confidence that Chicago Bulls fans had in the 90s. Not saying we should be arrogant. I'm not saying we should be cocky. But there should be this assurance within us. There should be this poise within us. Like no matter how much of a leg up evil seems to have, we got MJ on our team. Game seven, on the road, down two with seconds left, give MJ the ball. That's our scenario. Listen to an example of this mindset from Scripture. This is Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3. David is writing, and he says, The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. And again, this doesn't mean that we're careless or complacent. It doesn't mean we don't take our enemies seriously, but we do face him confidently. This, by the way, is what the entire book of Revelation is all about. That there is chaos on earth. There is chaos in our lives. But John's vision in Revelation, his vision is of Christ reigning supreme over it all. He is sovereign over it all. He is victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. And so, Christian, let's embrace this confidence. Let's embrace the peace, the assurance that we worship an undefeated God. We follow an almighty Savior, and no one, nothing, stands a chance against him. Now, so far, I've shared about Jesus in relation to the demons, but I want to finish by sharing about Jesus in relation to the man who was possessed by the demons. Because this man's experience is a dramatic example of what happens when Jesus frees someone from the power of darkness. And the first thing we see is that Jesus removes his uncleanness. Jesus removes his uncleanness. Now, this idea of being unclean most obviously comes through because the man is said to have an unclean spirit. Three times throughout the passage, it's referred to as an unclean spirit. And biblically speaking, unclean 
refers to anything that is defiled or corrupted by sin. So the opposite of unclean is holy. Something or someone who is holy is set apart and consecrated to the Lord. So, for example, in Scripture, sometimes it refers to angels as holy angels, God's holy angels. So those would be spiritual beings who are holy to the Lord and serve the Lord. But an unclean spirit is just the opposite. Those are spiritual beings that hate the Lord and serve Satan. And again, three different times, Mark says the man is possessed by this unclean spirit. Possessed meaning he's under the power of, he's in the grip of this unclean spirit. His life is dominated by the unclean one. But not only is he possessed by an unclean force, force, he's also in an unclean place. Verse 3 tells us that he's been driven to live among the tombs. He lived amongst the dead bodies buried in this graveyard. And according to Old Testament law, specifically the books of Leviticus and Numbers, the dead bodies of both people and animals were ritually unclean. I imagine this is because death is ultimately the result of sin. Perhaps it was also because of matters of hygiene, but regardless, dead bodies and contact with the dead meant that you were ceremonially unclean. And this guy lives among the dead. He's filled with an unclean spirit, living in an unclean place. Furthermore, this man was a Gentile, living in a region of Gentiles. So Gentiles are essentially non-Jews. If you are not a physical descendant of Abraham, then you are a Gentile. So for example, my pagan ancestry goes all the way back to pre-Christian Europe. And since my family migrated here in the last couple of centuries, we've also gained some Native American ancestors, but I do not have genealogical roots in the physical descendants of Abraham. So I am a Gentile, and I imagine that's true for most of us here. And that was certainly true for this man in the story. He lived in a city called Gerasene near an area called Decapolis, and this was Gentile country. A major clue of their Gentile status is that there is a pig farm nearby. And pigs are unclean for Jews. Pork is not kosher. You will not find any Jewish pig farms. So the story just piles up the unclean nature of this man. He's filled with an unclean spirit, the demons. He lived in an unclean place, the graveyards. And he has an unclean pedigree. He's a Gentile. And yet Jesus sets sail right in his direction. Jesus steps onto the shore of the garrison, knowing full well the defiled nature of this place. Evil spirits, pig farms, false gods, he doesn't care. He's here for it. And so with compassion in his heart and strength in his voice, he speaks the unclean spirit out of the man. 
The power of his word, the force of his command is irresistibly obeyed by the legion. And as unclean as the man was in every way, he was so defiled, but now he is made holy by the word of God. In 1 Corinthians 6, the apostle Paul, he's warning Corinthian believers about wandering into sin. And he's reminding them not to lose focus, not to forget what God has done for them in Christ. And he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, church, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Church, are you aware of the stain of sin in your life? Are you aware of shame and a sense of guilt for things you've done? Is there a defiling power present in your life right now? Well, receive the good news that there is cleansing power, the apostle says. There is cleansing power in the blood of Christ. Receive the good news that there is a sanctifying power in the spirit of Christ. And no matter how deep the stain of sin, no matter how shameful the things you've done, no matter the defiling power present in your life, it is all no match for King Jesus. The dark powers fall in his presence. Shame is smothered by his grace. And through faith in Jesus, you can be made holy. You can be set apart from every unclean power. That's what Jesus does for this man. It's what he's done for all of us who have put our trust in Jesus. He removes our uncleanness. Secondly, he restores our humanity. Jesus restores our humanity. So along with defiling this man, this unclean spirit, this legion of demons, robs him of his humanity. You think about it, he's living in a graveyard. So he's cut off from society. Mark also tells us that he was cutting himself with stones. So he's lost self-regard. He's lost self-worth. And Mark also reports that he has this inhuman amount of strength. When the townspeople tried to control him with shackles and chains, he would wrench them apart. Like, this is not human behavior. Listen to the way Mark puts it in verse 4. He says, The man had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. And that word translated subdue right there. It's the same word used when talking about taming or restraining a wild animal. Um, in James chapter 3, verse 7, James says, Every kind of beast and bird, every kind of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by 
mankind. That word translated tamed there in James 3, it's the same Greek word being translated here in Mark chapter 5, verse 4, as subdued. They could not subdue. They could not tame the man. I bring this up because Mark is telling us that they were forced to treat this man like an animal. There was no reasoning with him. There was no talking it out. He was out of control. He was out of his mind. He was so beastly, they had to treat him like one. They could only treat him like an animal. His humanity was completely gone. But look at verses 14 through 15. When the townspeople come out to see what had happened, verse 15 says, They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. So previously, this man was uncontrollable, untamable. Twice, Mark tells us, no one could subdue him. No one could control him. But here he is sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus. And previously, the man had apparently been naked, which isn't surprising considering all the other dehumanizing aspects of his condition. Apparently, he had been naked because Mark now makes the note that he is clothed. And previously, the man had been out of his mind, crying out, cutting himself, animal-like behavior, but here he is, sitting with Jesus, clothed appropriately, And in his right mind, Mark says. One translator translates this phrase, in his right mind, as stone cold sober. He was a feral animal, and now he's sober-minded, clear thinking. His humanity's been restored. This man's condition is a graphic, dramatic example of the power of Satan, how the power of sin dehumanizes us. Because often the lie of sin is that to be your true self, to be your authentic self, well, then you need to give in to whatever sort of sin. Oftentimes the lie of sin is that if you don't do this sinful thing, then you're not being you. You're not being yourself. But this man's story tells us the exact opposite. The power of sin and Satan does not lead to a fully human, self-actualized life. Just the opposite. Sin steals our humanity. Satan robs us of ourselves. Because, you see, we were created to live in a loving, trusting, obedient relationship with our Creator God. We were wired for relationship with our Creator God. So when we give in to sin... When our lives are dominated by Satan's lies, we're dehumanized. For example, think of a couple of the testimonies from our last baptisms. Ophelia, one of our sisters here, sharing her story about her life before she came to know the Lord. She shared about this habit of stealing from others. And she would steal from others in order to impress her friends. And then 16 years old, She hears the gospel and comes to her senses. I wasn't made to live for the approval of others. I was made to live for God. And I can trust him to provide my needs. Stealing is inhuman. Or Alex Toyansky, he was baptized and shared his story last month. 
He shared how before he came to know the Lord, he was very religious. He was very moral in one sense, but there wasn't this heart-level experience of God's grace. And this showed itself in him starting to look down on others. He started to judge others and develop the kind of self-righteousness and arrogance. But then he encounters Jesus through the gospel and he comes to his senses that I'm just as broken as anybody else. I'm no better than anybody else. Arrogance and self-righteousness are inhuman. It's not the way we were created to be. And so I ask, how has sin dehumanized your life? How has sin robbed you of your humanity? Are there addictive substances robbing you of your money, your mind, your self-control? Are there sinful relationships robbing you of your ability to honor God with your body? Are there sinful habits that are robbing you of your ability to work successfully and love your family well? Well, whatever's coming to mind for you now in relation to those questions, I want you to know that you can no more control those sinful urges than this demon-possessed man could be chained or shackled. The only hope for us in our bondage to sin is the power of the gospel. The only hope for us who are stuck in Satan's lies is the power of Jesus' sovereign voice calling us to life and freeing us by his spirit. Listen to the testimony of one man. His name's Charles Wesley. He was a hymn writer and a poet from England. He wrote this verse nearly 250 years ago one of my favorite hymns. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Then thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This brother is across the Atlantic Ocean nearly 300 years ago, and he also describes the enlivening, awakening, freeing power of Jesus in his life. And friends, the same freedom, the same new life, the same hope can enter our hearts as we hear the gospel and respond in faith. And really quickly, for clarity's sake, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel literally means Good news. And the good news from God is that He sent His Son Jesus to live the life that you and I should have lived. Jesus lived a beautiful, compelling, flawless life. And then He died the death we should have died. He suffered the judgment of God in our place. Just like those pigs. Those pigs absorbed those demons and then dove headfirst to their watery grave. Jesus absorbed all the weight of our sin on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. The power of sin was unleashed onto Jesus so that the power of sin could be leashed in our lives. And then after he died, Jesus, undefeatable as he is, he rose from the grave proving he is the ultimate victor, the ultimate champion. That's the gospel. 
That is God's good news for our world. And that message has power to liberate us, to spiritually awaken us so that we can start to live the lives God meant us to live so that we can be human again. And so I call on you. Come under the sound of the gospel. Put yourself within the hearing of the gospel in the music you listen to, in the books you read, through the relationships you're in, through the preaching you hear, over and over, situate yourself under the sound of the glad tidings of the gospel because it's through this gospel that the freeing, saving, authoritative voice of Jesus speaks into our lives, rescuing us from sin. And then once that happens then we join the chorus of gospel communicators. That's what happens in this demon-possessed man's life. His uncleanness is removed, his humanity is restored, and finally he is then commissioned for ministry. He's commissioned for ministry. Jesus enlists this man to testify to God's grace. Verse 18, the man wants to go with Jesus and be with him, but Jesus has different plans for him. Verse 19, Jesus says to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how the Lord has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. You see, this man's salvation was not for his sake alone. No, Jesus wants to reach the man's friends through the testimony of God's work in his life. And his friends marvel. They are amazed at the mercy of God. And this man was not an apostle. This man was not a pastor. He was not a theologian. He was not a Michael Jordan level of Christian. Not at all. He was a brand new baby believer, but he had a testimony. He had a story to tell, a story of darkness and pain and bondage, a story of utter hopelessness, and then he encountered Jesus. He experienced Jesus' compassion and love and power, and his life was completely transformed. So friend, what's your story? How has God met you through the truth of Jesus? How have you been changed by this message of love? And who now are you supposed to tell that story to? Who is Jesus sending you to? Friend, God can do it. God can use your story of redemption to point people to Jesus. He commissions this man. He commissions us for ministry of the message of the kingdom. You know, I don't think it's an accident that we're working through these chapters of Scripture while at the same time going through what we're going through in our world. There was unspeakable evil carried out last week in Israel and now a devastating war for so many. There are UAW strikes making our regional economy uncertain. There are many other strikes across the country making the whole country's economy uncertain. There is the U.S. Congress 
which is leaderless and paralyzed at the moment. And yet, here we are in the middle of these chapters that lift high the sovereignty, authority, and sheer power of the Lord Jesus. There is no storm he cannot still. There is no demon he cannot destroy. And next week we'll see there is no death he cannot undo. So church, as the earth around us gives way, Though the economy may crumble, though the government may completely shut down, the witness of Scripture for us is clear. The Lord is unshakable. His purposes are unstoppable. His word goes forth with unstoppably effective power, and we can take hope in him. The Son of the Most High God, the one who cleanses us, the one who restores us, and the one who now sends us out as ambassadors of his kingdom message. May we do it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word together, and I will pray for us.